Um, verse um, 1 to 29. <clears throat> he went away from there, that is Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James? And I was going to say Jose. It's Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his, and, and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over their unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but, n but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive um, you and they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them verse 14 king herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21, and really focus here, because um, it's easy to lose focus and start thinking about other things, but we're in verse 41. Let's finish well. 21. <laughs> I need to focus. Verse 21, but, <laughs> but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. 
And she went out and said to her mother, for what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's a graphic kind of Sunday, isn't it? A lot going on. All right, pray with me. Father, thank you for speaking to us through the life of Jesus. Not just his life, but his teachings. And so as we reflect on his life and Jesus' teachings, may you help us understand and may you help us apply these truths. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, after about a year of ministry um, out of town, you, um, Jesus goes back home to Nazareth, and Nazareth is his hometown. Um, Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but Nazareth is the village where he grew up, okay? In those days, Nazareth was a small town, just a very small town. It wasn't as big as San Diego or anything like that. It had a population of about 200 people. And so having grown up in a village like that, Jesus um, was very much known but by most of the people, small village. And so he arrives there, and on the Sabbath, as is his custom, what he does is he attends a service at the local synagogue. He's invited to teach, and as he shares insights from the Bible, verse 2 says that many who heard him were astonished, all right? And and because of the astonishment, they started having conversations within themselves. And and if you look at the end of the last part of verse 2, it says they, they started having these conversations and asking questions, and they were saying, where did this man, this Jesus man, right, where did he get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And so this is not the first time Jesus' teaching has provoked this kind of reaction, okay? Um, We're in chapter 6 now, but throughout our study of the life of Jesus from the written account by Mark, um, we've seen that whatever Jesus did, whatever Jesus said, people responded with amazement, okay? And so this is what's happening. His people from his hometown are responding in astonishment. However, the people um, didn't remain astonished, okay? Verse 3 lets us know what they started to say. It says, and they started to say, it's not this the carpenter, um, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Jose's, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us, and Listen to it. It says, and they took offense at him. Okay, By them saying, is this not a carpenter? 
and is this not the son of Mary, right? That was an insult okay, to Jesus because they're saying, you're a carpenter by trade. That is your profession. How are you able to speak so profoundly from Scripture? It doesn't make sense. They were astonished because they couldn't believe that a man like Jesus, okay, a carpenter by trade, um, someone who is without any formal theological training or education, gained a following. He came with his disciples, okay, and spoke with with such a great depth of knowledge and deep insight. They're just blown. They couldn't believe it. Back then, as I said, a carpenter was a respected career. It was, but for a carpenter to do miracles and teach so profoundly was something unheard of. And so you can imagine what's happening. Okay? Jesus goes back home. He is teaching powerfully. Yeah, it doesn't tell us whether they've done, he did any miracles there, but they are astonished to begin with. And then they get offended by Jesus. Their astonishment quickly turned to suspicion. They took offense at him. The most accurate English word for the word offense here is scandal. The people of Nazareth, his people, were scandalized by Jesus they were severely offended by his audacity to claim to be someone different to who they knew him to be. After all, this is Jesus. Some of them possibly rem remembered when he was still growing up and in diapers and playing basketball and football maybe. You know, he must have been awesome at that. Imagine Jesus playing like sports with everyone else. It's like just crazy. But a lot of them were just familiar with him, right? They saw him grow up and now suddenly he comes back and he is coming back as this elite rabbi um, and man who has all this knowledge. And so they are kind of suspicious and offended by it. So Jesus was met with hostility when he returned home. How does Jesus respond um, to, these, um, to the rejection? Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, uh, this is what Jesus says. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he, verse 5, could, not, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Here, Jesus is amazed by their unbelief, by their lack of faith. They had heard him teach with authority. They had seen him perform miracles. Jesus had done enough to convince him that he was more... To, Jesus had, had done enough to convince them that he was more than the carpenter they knew, right? The son of Mary, the son of Joseph, but they refused to believe his true identity, and that is the Messiah, the king. All he did was not enough. Unbelief had consumed their hearts and their minds the same way a fever takes over and torments the body. 
And the root cause of their unbelief was familiarity. It really was. Their present view of Jesus was based on their past knowledge of Jesus. Their current relationship with Jesus and how they viewed him was determined by their past relationship with Jesus. It was based on something familiar rather than something that is true. And so my question to us all is this. What's your current view of Jesus based on? Right now, what's your present-day relationship with Jesus based on? Is it based on what's familiar to you or what is true? Is it based on the culture's understanding of who Jesus is? Is it based on past experiences? When it comes to how you view Jesus this present day right now, is it based on popular media's depiction of who Jesus is? Okay? Is it based on merchandise? Is Jesus your homeboy? Right? Is it based on a musical you saw and loved many years ago? Is it based on a book you read? Is who you believe Jesus to be based on popular opinion and what's familiar to you or what the Bible says? How we view Jesus needs to be constantly refined by Scripture. It really is. And you notice, constantly refined, right? It's an ongoing um, refining and correcting of who we view Jesus to be. Because there are so many influences, right, that try to influence how we view Jesus. But the most important thing we always have to remember is to remember to continue to base who we view Jesus to be on scripture, on what the Bible says, okay? I grew up um, um, in a home where my mom went to a certain church, okay, um, and my grandma as well growing up, and growing up, they, they, they had a view of Jesus. I would hear them teach about Jesus, and now, the more I read scripture, the more I realize that um, how they viewed Jesus was Partly true, but it wasn't fully true. And so personally, I'm coming to terms with some of my views of Jesus in the past being incorrect. And by God's grace, as I study the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark, I get to understand more and more who Jesus really is. And so, is your current relationship with Jesus, is it based on the truth of the Bible or is it based on what's familiar and popular? If your current relationship with Jesus is not based on the truth of the Bible, unbelief could be knocking at your door. Your current view of Jesus shouldn't be based on what's familiar to you, but what is revealed in Scripture. So, the root cause of unbelief is familiarity. 
But the effects of unbelief is the weakening of God's power in your life. Look at verse 5 again. It says, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Right? Unbelief caused them to reject. And by rejecting Jesus, they prevented him from working powerfully in their midst. Did you guys just see that? That's wild. Unbelief, right? It's kind of the obstacle or the fever, if we could say, that hinders the work of God in our lives. It freezes God's power. It gets in the way of God's power. Um, and it prevents us. Our Kent Hughes says this. He says, unbelief robs the church of its power. He, he can add new pro, we can add new programs until we do not have enough hours in the day to administer them or enough bulletin inserts to advertise them. But without a believing expectancy in Christ and his power, nothing will come of it. And so, King's Cross Church, do we believe that God can work powerfully? Right? I'm a skeptic by nature. I really am. I just question everything, and I try and rationalize everything. I do. And recently, I realized that. I realized that God could be working, but I could be doubting that he's actually working or he's going to complete the work he started in my life and in the life of others. And so, when I begin to think like that, I am dabbling or entertaining unbelief. And unbelief can hinder the power of God but fully working in our lives. Do we believe God can save friends and family that we've been praying for for years? Okay, I struggle with this. Your neighbors and people in your life that you've been praying for years, is God truly powerful enough to save them? And the longer we go on and the longer we pray for them, the easier it is for us to be, the easier it is for us to start doubting. And so do we believe? Our belief shouldn't be a short distance kind of belief. It needs to be long distance. That is faith, okay? Um, the cure for unbelief um, is, is captured really well in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, there's this story of a father who has a son, and the son is possessed by demons, and it's really affecting the son. And so he goes, the father goes to the disciples, and he says to the disciples, hey, can you like help cast out these demons? And so the disciples try and cast out these demons, and they can't. And then what happens is that the man takes the son to Jesus and he asks, and, and he asks Jesus to help. And so Mark chapter 9 verse 21, and it, and it says, And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for you who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay? I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, 
come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that, the mo that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. I love how the father responded to Jesus. Okay? I believe, help my unbelief. And so my question to you is, how do we strengthen our unbelief? By simply asking Jesus. By simply going to Jesus, the cure for unbelief is by believing, believing that when we ask Jesus to cure our unbelief, he hears us and immediately begins to transform our unbelief to faith, trust, and belief in him. And so what, uh, are you struggling with unbelief in any area of your life? And if you are, um, what, how you need to respond is not try and muster up you know, faith within yourself. No, simply go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe that you can powerfully work in my life. Verse 7, and Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, okay? And so in the ancient world, they didn't have the um, marketing tools that we have now, like social media, vlogs, and all of that to um, um, spread a message or spread influence, okay? The most effective way to spread your message or influence was through people, and Jesus calls his disciples and just says, hey, go out and do what I did and say what I said. Okay? Um, verse 8, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. As Jesus commissioned his disciples, he gave them directions for how to proceed. He instructs them to go in twos and gives them authority over unclean spirits. And so basically what Jesus is saying is that, hey, you guys need to travel light. And by him saying that, he wanted them to fully rely on him, right, to provide all of their needs, okay? To provide all of their needs. Um, he goes on to say in verse 11, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so in the ancient world, in the ancient world hospitality um, was an important element of the, uh, of the culture, right? They didn't have the hotels or Airbnbs that we do. And so when people traveled in the ancient world, they relied on the hospitality of others for lodging. And so that's how it works. And so the instructing Jesus gives here is expected, okay? If a place shows hospitality, stay there, okay? Don't go to one place and then think to yourself, oh my gosh, I should have stayed in that mansion because they're inviting me there. No, like stay in that place until you're done. And then he says to them, if a place will not receive you, right? will not accept you, will not walk warmly welcome you and be hospitable. What does it say? Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And now this statement, that whole shaking dust of your feet is provocative. And why is that? Back then, when a Jew returned home from traveling in Gentile regions, Gentile regions are non-Jewish regions, they were required to shake the dust 
off their feet at the border before entering back into Jewish territory. The reason for this ritual was because they believed that any dust outside of Jewish Jewish territory was unclean. That action symbolized God's judgment on that city and paganism. So here, Jesus is saying to his disciples, um, when he instructs them to shake the dust off their feet, if a home or city rejects you um, and are hostile towards you, they reject me, and because they reject me, move on, have nothing to do with them. And so what does all of this, sending out the disciples, have to do with us? And it, it has this to do with us. It gives us a lot of comfort, Okay. Most of us, we're here in this city, and we're here to be on mission for Jesus. We want to advance the gospel. We want to tell people about Jesus and what he's done in our lives and what he can do in their lives. And we want to help people treasure Jesus because he's the hope for every single individual, every single human on this face of the planet. And we're doing that. And Jesus has sent us out. He sent out his disciples then, and he's sending us out and continuing to do that in this city. But I love what it says. Jesus warns them and says, hey, not everyone is going to receive you. Not everyone is going to accept the message that you bring. And when that happens, don't be discouraged, okay? Don't get in like a fetal position and like cry. No, no one's listening. No, don't do that. Continue. Shake the dust off your feet and continue until the next people, okay? And so be encouraged. This should be comforting to us. If Jesus was rejected by his own people, okay, and if disciples, right, Jesus predicted that they would be rejected, let's not lose hope when we are rejected for living for Jesus and letting people know who he is. So, Extraordinary things happen as Jesus' disciples go out into preaching the gospel. Just like Jesus, they plead with people to repent. They cast out demons and heal the sick. And because of this, Jesus is more known and talked about than ever. Look at verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work, right? And some people are saying, right, who is this Jesus guy? He must be John the Baptist because John the Baptist was awesome and powerful. And so John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Some people thought that. Other people thought, look at verse 15, thought he was Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so Jesus' fame is growing, and because his fame is growing, people are wondering who he is, okay? People have their opinions, but Herod says, I think I know who this Jesus is. He is John the Baptist, the guy I played a role in beheading. He said this because not too long ago, he played a role in the execution of John the Baptist. He gave permission, this is Herod, listen carefully, he gave permission to execute John because ever since his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, 
went public, John openly spoke against it because marrying the wife of his brother was forbidden and regarded as incest. And so Herod, he really likes his brother's wife. And because he's on the throne, he decides to marry his brother's wife, take his brother's wife. And John the Baptist is like, no, 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 no. This ain't cool. This is weird. You can't be doing that. Herod, offended by John's bold rebuke of his lifestyle, captures him and locks him up in jail. His new wife, Herodias, I love the names, Herod, Herodias, all of that. can get confusing, but I know you guys are following. Okay, Herodias also bore a grudge against John for his public disapproval of their relationship. Look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Herod's like, I'm just going to keep this guy quiet in jail. Herodias is like, I want to kill him. But she could not. Why? Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That is so interesting. Okay, And the reason why that's interesting is like Herod respected John. He knew John was a holy man and um, a righteous man, and so he protected him. He liked to listen to John, and even though he was greatly disturbed by what John had to say, he gladly listened to what John had to say, but it's the important thing. Herod even though he liked what John had to say, was unwilling to apply the truths to his life. He was not willing to repent. He was unwilling to end his lawless marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. He knew it wasn't right. What John had to say was compelling, but he was unwilling to actually live it out. What are the things you're holding on to that you know for sure God has been telling you to let go of? What are the things in your life that God wants you to remove from your life, but you're resisting his voice in your life. I don't know what it is. Maybe, could be, it's living your life without him at the center of your life. You have heard about Jesus, you have heard about how he is king and he needs to be king of your life and it's compelling to you. But you haven't actually taken that all-important step of being all in for Jesus. You're hearing, 
but you're not applying to your life. Maybe, and this was a struggle for me, okay? Maybe um, God wants you to stop living a lie. He wants you to quit hiding your sins and confess them to others. And you know confession is powerful, and confession is, has a healing element to it. When, when, when you're in community and you have friends in this church and they're in your life and you're in your life and all of the others, and God wants you to be open and vulnerable and transparent, and you know it's true and you know it's good for you, but you've been resisting. What are the things you're holding on to that you know for sure God has been telling you to let go of? Like Herod, he heard the truth, but he was unprepared. He was not prepared to allow the truth to shape how he lived. One thing to hear, another to live. And it's challenging. It really is. But again, what is it? Whatever it is, let us heed these words from J.C. Rao. J.C. Rao says this. And listen to this. This is great. I wish we could have it on the screen. Um, but he says this. Let us take warning from Herod's case. Let us keep back nothing, cling to no favorite vice, spare nothing that stands between us and our Savior. Let us often look within and make sure that there is no darling lust or pet transgression, which Herodias like is murdering our souls. Let us not be content with admiring favorite preachers and favorite sayings, you know, on Instagram, right? Let's not be content in just admire, oh, that was good. Let us not rest till we can say with David, because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. So that's my encouragement to you, and that's my encouragement as I say it to myself. What is it? God is always speaking. Let us respond with repentance. And live out what he's saying. Look at verse 21. It says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. In due time, an opportunity came up for Herodias to finally get John killed. It was, Herodias, it was Herod's birthday, and her daughter was invited to dance at the party. Of course, we look at birthday parties, and we look at this girl coming and dancing and think, oh, yeah, you know, our modern view of it, it's kind of like, yeah, this is subtle, and this is nice. But in the ancient world, a typical birthday party held by someone like Herod was different to what we're used to, okay? It's like Donald Trump holding, like, a party. Okay? It's very sophisticated, and everybody's wearing suits, and there's dinner tables, and maybe um, there's a performance by someone. I don't even know, but it's very, but this was different, right? 
None of that was happening. Basically, what would happen is that all the men would get drunk and bring in a prostitute to strip tease or lap dance or something worse. That was the norm and that was the tradition back then. In this case, they don't hire an unknown prostitute, but instead Herod hires his stepdaughter to entertain them with a seductive dance. And after her performance, it says in verse 22 that Herod and his guests were what? They were pleased. In this context, because it was a seductive dance, the implication is that him and his guests were basically turned on. Okay? By his stepdaughter. It's just filthy. I, I was thinking about this. If this was, like this scene, right, was depicted in a movie, it would be R-rated. It really was. Could never watch it. So try and imagine what's going on here. Turned on by her performance, Herod makes the following vow to her in verse 3. He says, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Here, Herod is making it clear that he has the power to give the girl anything she wants. Not knowing exactly what she wanted from Herod, what does she do? She goes to her mom, Herodias, and said, Mom, what should I ask for? Without hesitation, Herodias is like, today is my day. Woo, what should you ask for? Ask for the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, 28, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mom. 29, when his disciples, that is John's disciples, heard of this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. When I read this, and I'm sure you guys are thinking this, this is possibly a very, not possibly, absolutely a very horrific, unjust, and tragic way for any man to die, let alone John the Baptist, a man described as holy and righteous. A man Jesus called the greatest prophet ever to walk on the face of the earth, and this is how his life ends? His life didn't end with him on his deathbed with all his disciples around him. No, his life ended because of a perverted, power-hungry, coward king, of, king that is Herod. That is how his life ended. These verses describe the death of one of the most eminent saints of God. Matthew, 11, um, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so, like, John the Baptist is awesome. In so many ways. 
He really is. But yet, this is how his life ends. But looking at this, it also reveals to us the most honorable way for Christians to live and die. And that is to live for Jesus and die because of his purposes. John lived for Jesus. There's a point in the Gospel of Mark when he says, my whole purpose of living is to decrease so that Jesus might increase. Okay? So John is saying it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And my whole reason for living is for Jesus. And if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out for Jesus because of his purposes. Now, live in America and we're not yet not yet experiencing persecution for what we believe as believers we're not it's coming but we know many of you are aware of the fact that there are many brothers and sisters okay who live in other parts of the world other christians who are being executed Because of Jesus. When you die, what will you be remembered for? Will you be remembered for loving and living for Jesus? Pray with me. Thank you, Father, for um, for this morning. Thank you for reminding us of all of these truths. There's just so much, so much to ponder, so much to reflect on. Um, and one sermon, one message will never do. We'll never be able to do what you can do. We know for sure that you can do in a moment what we can try and do in a, lifestyle, in a lifetime. And so, Father, uh, may your spirit powerfully um, speak to all of our hearts and all of our minds. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to enter into a time of reflection. And this is a time where we want you to... Um, rest and reflect on everything we've covered. I know we've covered a lot, okay? Covered a lot. Um, But as you reflect, think about these questions, okay? What is God saying to you? What do you need to do when will you do it and who will help you apply God's truths to your lives let me say that again what is God saying to you right now we covered a lot what 
What's the highlight for you? What do you need to do? When will you do it? And who will help you do it? May your time of reflection cause you to love Jesus because he's worthy and he deserves it. And as you love Jesus, may it inspire you to live for him. Amen.